0: Hey, it's Aileen. And Sammy. And Jordana. If you like what you're hearing, the holiday break is the perfect time to catch up on your favorite Betches podcast or discover a new one that you've been missing all year. We've got podcasts for every interest. Betch slap for fans of the three of us. Diet starts tomorrow for the girl who always wants to lose three pounds. And our newest podcast, Unfollowed, which is hosted by Carly Aquilino and Ricky Velez talking about the most offensive social media trends. And you know, there's a lot of them. So thank you for listening and we'll see you in 2019.
1: And welcome to the Betches Up podcast. I'm Elise Morales. I'm Sammy Fishbine, And we've got a very special guest for you today.
0: Yes, our guest today is journalist Sarah Kenzier, author, author of The View from Flyover Country and, the pod, and one of the co-hosts of the podcast Gaslit Nation, which has quickly become one of my favorites. Wow. And she is also one of my favorite Twitter follows. <laughs> S- Sarah, you sort of are a bit of like the Paul Revere of Russian meddling. And... <laughs> So we really wanted to have you to talk about um, an issue that we don't feel is getting nearly enough recognition um, in this time, which is the Republicans' attempt to call for a constitutional convention.
2: Yeah, um, that's a big issue. It's an issue that predates Trump uh, by quite a bit, but I think has been exacerbated by the political tendencies of the Trump administration, which are broadly autocratic. Um, but in terms of the role of the GOP, you see the GOP aiming for a one-party state. Um, you know, you saw this in the election through things like gerrymandering, voter suppression, um, you know, allowing foreign interference to uh, that Republican goals. Um, and so this old dream, you know, it's really based... Dates back a few decades of a constitutional convention uh, in which the GOP would rewrite the Constitution so that it reflected um, basically libertarian economics and extremely conservative uh, social um, you know laws and beliefs uh, is becoming more of a reality under this administration.
0: So just. Uh OK, so are they thinking like page one rewrite or do we get to keep the Bill of Rights? Like <laughs> like, like how how far are they really looking to take this?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, from what I've read about this, it's like different parties, different groups uh, have been debating this. Like there's fighting among uh, the libertarians and conservatives that want this to pass. But. Um, you know, as terms of how far they'll take it, I mean, I think they'll take it as far as they go. You know, there are limitations in, uh, you know, how this can happen. You need to have 34 state legislatures on board. Right now they have 28. Um, oh, my
1: God. You
2: know, to, yeah, so we're getting <laughs> closer and closer. You know, every year. Uh, a few more say, yeah, you know, we're up for that. Like Missouri did that, that's my state. This year, um, you know, so they are getting closer to this uh, goal. And we see, of course, um, states becoming more dominated by the GOP, uh, you know, and because of things like gerrymandering. Like this is mm-hmm. a long-term political project uh, where the goal is to try to structure the state legislatures and rig that in order to go full throttle um, and transform the Constitution. You know, the, the people behind this, um, it's largely uh, the Koch brothers and the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the primary forces behind it. But you see all sorts of different conservatives and just you know, bigots and racists. Uh, hopping on board. Um, David Horowitz, for example, is a a recent one to join up. uh, Groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center have been documenting what this would mean for civil rights, uh, for voting rights, um, for LGBT rights, you know, everybody. Um, And so, yeah, you know, what exactly they'll do, you know, if they manage to hold a constitutional convention, there's going to be a massive outcry. You know, you're going to see people revolt. You're going to see the Democrats and independents and just, you know, folks in general pushing back because we haven't had a constitutional yeah. convention in about, you know, 230 <laughs> years. So yeah, since it's the a really first deal.
1: one, right? But, have, we,
2: one. have we ever... Yeah, this would be the first one since we've had a constitution. <laughs> <laughs> this would be the first one since 1787. And so it's really hard to predict Um, You know how this would happen Or what would happen but it would not happen Smoothly Um, however it Really is a possibility and so I do Wish more people were just paying attention to It as a significant threat Yeah
1: this is definitely something that I had Not heard of until Sammy brought it To my attention via you Uh, But (laughs) so just on a basic Level for people who are reading like what Or for listening what does it mean To call a constitutional convention Like what is that I guess
2: um, basically it would be a, a meeting of the state legislatures, um, you know, under article five of the constitution to amend the document, you know, to rewrite parts of it. And I'm not like a constitutional law scholar. Um, I can't really, mm-hmm. you know, detail the process of how that would work, but in order for even, you know, the meeting to happen, uh, you have to have 34 states consenting to it. And so, uh, you know, that that may happen and you know this really began to be Put into play um, kind of late 70s, early 80s uh, in the Reagan era, you know, the era of, of trickle down economics, of, you know, uh, large corporations dominating politics. Um, you certainly saw after Citizens United, uh, yeah. after the partial repeal of the VRA, all these tactical strategies uh, that conservatives were using in order to basically break down our system of checks and balances. And of course, one of the biggest checks and balances we have is the Constitution mm-hmm. and its protection of. Freedom of speech and freedom of religion—they're uh, trying to erode that. They're trying to create a very different type of, type of country, and I think a lot of uh, you know the momentum behind it is their fear of demographic change. Where if we don't have a white-dominated, Christian, you know, male-dominated country, uh, they freak out, and of course, they want absolute, you know, unfettered. Mm-hmm. quote-unquote, freedom, which basically means the freedom to oppress people, uh, you know, who aren't incredibly rich. And, you know, a removal of things like, for example, environmental protections or anything else that is, uh, you know, funded by the government for the benefit of the public, all that could potentially go away uh, if they are able to pull this off and amend the Constitution. But, yeah, you know, as I was saying before, it's not like they're just going to sit around one day, pass it, and that's that. You know, I'm sure there'll be enormous uh, blowback yeah. if they do right. try to do this.
0: Well, if they want to repeal all the environmental protections, then their their new country isn't going to last very long. So, it seems like it would sort of be a waste of their time. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned that this went goes back to the Reagan era, but doesn't it kind of go back like to the Civil War and even to before like the Articles of of Confederation? Wasn't the idea behind that that the federal government is not they wanted the states to have the power they saw that it didn't work and i mean isn't this idea sort of even older than like right now or is it is it is it distinct from from those older ideals
2: yeah i mean it it stems from those older ideals and it reflects you know different ideas of states rights different ideas of sovereignty. But, um, you know, kind of, I think what's really changed is that we've never had a corporate power that's so massive um, Mm -hmm. and so organized and so steadfast and so willing to just, you know, overturn uh, the idea of what America is. You know, this is basically the biggest kind of Uh, Conglomeration to that effect that we've seen since the Civil War, where they really don't care uh, if the country, you know, dissolves, you know, if it's rid of its core values, if it's rid of its core document, Um, you know, and kind of in reference to what you said before about, you know, this seems uh, idiotic because if you're not, for example, protecting the environment, um, you're going to run into a lot of problems. They are basically social Darwinists. They don't care what happens to ordinary people at all. You know, they see wealth uh, as equivalent to merit, and those who are not, you know, at a certain station in life, those who are not exorbitantly rich, are thought to be deserving of whatever hardship that they face, and that's kind of like at the heart of their goal of you know, amending this document is to, you know, preserve what they think that they're entitled to. You know, it's a very libertarian uh, philosophy. It's a very cold hearted uh, philosophy, but, you know, they're committed to it.
1: It's also so interesting to me because I feel like the same group of people who would be pushing for this are like it's the same group of people who normally are like, the Constitution is like this perfect document that was sent from heaven into George Washington's brain and like (laughs) like I feel like they're normally the people who are like constitutional originalist almost and then they would be the ones who would be trying to change it that's a good point
2: yeah there's definitely that I mean you see that in the tea party you know the the, some of the party proponents are some of the most enthusiastic proponents of a constitutional convention mm-hmm. and in some of the meetings where they you know were trying to rally people and get them to support it you know you'd see folks dressed up like it was the 1780s like yes. wearing wigs and you know robes and all those kind of things so there is this you know fetishization of the constitution and of america of the colonial era um but it doesn't extend into you know ideals it doesn't kind of extend into modernity. They don't, uh, you know, treasure anything about the document in terms of, you know, kind of what attracts, for example, uh, you know, immigrants to America, like the idea of liberty and justice for all, you know, they they are opposed to that. You know, a lot of these folks are opposed to the Statue of Liberty. They're opposed to the words... That are written on it, and so you know there have always been competing notions of American identity of what civil liberties mean. Uh, these are people who are just not invested in those liberties for anybody but themselves, and because they wield such disproportionate wealth and power, they may well uh, be able to translate that into law.
0: So, what is this? What is this world that they're they're envisioning? Like, is it like a Handmaid's Tale situation? <laughs> like, what, what are they? Like, what do you think it, it looks like based on, you know, I know obviously you don't know everything that they all think, and I'm sure there and like you said, there is some division with it, within this movement in general, but what is, like, what are, are there any specific provisions that they're, like, going to go after for sure, or are there certain things that they definitely want to add in?
2: Yeah, I mean, generally it, it reflects, um, you know, the same kind of spectrum of extremism. You've seen in the, you know, in the Trump administration, there are a lot of very racist people involved, the kind of people who call Black Lives Matter a terrorist group. Um, no. Kind of people were are very anti-Muslim, um, you know, call, calling all Muslim terrorists, very anti-immigrant, um, you know, so socially they, they are essentially white supremacists. You know, that's not always the main driving force behind everyone attracted to this concept, but they're certainly willing uh, to abet it, you know, much in the same way with Trump. And then you see these real, you know, Ayn Rand old school, libertarian types, uh, you know, whose fundamental idea is that business and the economy need to be completely unencumbered. So these are people who historically have been busting up, uh, you know, unions and mm-hmm. who wanted to privatize everything, privatize schools, get rid of national parks, you know, anything that's sort of um, publicly funded in American life, they want gone. And they see it as, you know, as, as some of them, like the Koch brothers, I mean, I think it's it's an actual belief, you know, it's something that they hold dear. It's not just kind of a means to an end. It it is the end. And uh, Jane Meyer's book, um, I think it's called Dark Money, like, you know, about the Koch brothers uh, is very informative in a sense, kind of getting at the family history and, uh, you know, because there's divisions within the family itself, um, you know, what led them down this uh, very dark road.
0: Wow. So why does it feel like this isn't really being spoken about either by politicians or by journalists? Or by really anybody. Because this is not a mainstream conversation, and it should be.
2: Yeah, it should. But I don't think people realize, for one, um, how close we are. In terms of how many states uh, you know are needed and that we're only six away Um, I think that they much like they've underestimated the damage that the Trump administration did or even you know they didn't believe Trump would win the primary they didn't believe he'd win the general they thought that he'd be held in by checks and balances once he took office there's a refusal to even envision the worst outcome or to imagine that this is possible but it is you know democracy is fragile like you have to actively fight for it and you have to actively work to protect the most vulnerable, or, you know, it's going to fall, and people are going to be badly hurt. Um, and I also think, you know, our media tends to be dominated by rich white men, and, you know, potentially we'll, we'll all suffer if this gets passed, you know, because our, our country will essentially be gone, you yeah. know, be turned formally into something else. But, you know, rich white men are, are the least likely to suffer. And so I think when there's, you know, the sort of hate rhetoric you see in there, um, when there's the sort of abandonment of people who are poor or middle class or, you know, vulnerable in any way, dependent on, uh, you know, the government in any way, uh, they're not looking out for those people. They don't care about those people. That's a flaw in the media in general. And so I think there there is a reluctance to confront it. Um, and then there's a sort of taboo, you know, which has been annoying the shit out of me for like years of, you know, this fear of being alarmist, this fear Mm -hmm. of being hysterical, like, oh, I can't talk about this terrible thing that's like actually really well documented and happening right in front of my eyes because it's so terrible that, you know, I will seem alarmist. I'll seem like I'm scaring people, but people need to, to wake up, you know? Because there's no way uh, to confront this or solve it without acknowledging that it exists. And, you know, some Democrats have been acknowledging it. You know, Hillary Mm -hmm. Clinton brought it up as a significant threat. But of course, you know, she is also labeled as an alarmist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she
1: brought up all the Russia stuff in the debates and everyone acted like she was crazy. You're a then. puppet. Yeah. yeah the, uh, the classic exchange. Yeah. So one question I had is like, let's say that I'm someone who's in a state that like you mentioned Missouri that has agreed. They said that they're interested in doing one of these conventions. Is there anything that you can do? Is there any recourse now to be like, I don't want my state to even be on board. Like, could we start chipping away at the states who have agreed to this?
2: Yeah. I mean, It's a tough thing. I think, you know, change needs to come from within the state. I think, like you said, people in general don't necessarily know that this is happening. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Missouri, if someone is is voting for a Republican, uh, they very likely don't know that this is something that a lot of these uh, Republican elites want. They often, in my experience in Missouri, um, don't know what policies the Republicans want to enforce. You know, like we had a bunch of very progressive ballot initiatives pass in Missouri. You know, one of them was campaign finance. Finance reform, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the, you know, another was protection of labor unions. You know, these are policies that traditionally, if you're going to vote for these, uh, you would vote for a Democrat. Folks genuinely didn't grasp uh, that the Republican that they elected as Senator Josh Hawley, who's now under federal investigation, <laughs> <laughs> Classic. investigation it is going to it's going to strike down these amendments. So there's real misinformation out there. You know, if you get all your info from Fox News, if you get it from Rush Limbaugh, uh, you're going to come away with a different perspective about what's going on. So I think, you know, number one, informing people that this is going on. This is an active threat. And then fighting Um, I think the structural barriers that are just bad on their own, you know, putting this issue aside, we should not have gerrymandering, we should not have, uh, you know, the repeal of the VRA, which led to voter ID laws, voter suppression, disenfranchisement, you know, all of this is just bad for our democracy in general, and of course would be made worse uh, under a constitutional convention, but it's what helps enable these state legislatures uh, to get in there. You know, in my state, the legislature is way, way, way more conservative than, like, the average Missouri person, Mm -hmm. even the average Missouri Republican. Um, You know, and and they're very dominated by special interests, by groups like the NRA. You know, they've got an agenda. And so I think folks need to wake up and kind of, you know, realize that these very powerful people are— serious you know they're patient and they've been building this for a long time and you know they're not they're not kidding around it's not something that we want to have to confront the day they finally get to 34 states then everyone's like hey what's the constitutional convention like we don't want that situation
1: yeah i feel like a lot of this ties into some of this like behavior we've seen in like wisconsin and michigan where outgoing republican legislatures are like passing these lame duck like bills laws so that like their stuff stays and the new Governors can't do anything about it Like it seems like it's all a part of this strategy Of like where the end goal Is for them to be in power not for Our democracy to be strong
0: Yes,
2: yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah that's absolutely right and Um, you know you certainly see examples with those states that's one of the the reasons I was very worried about the midterms I was worried that the Republicans just simply wouldn't concede you know remember the Alabama Senate race like Roy Moore never conceded and so I was worried that afterwards they would kind to of do that on maps and just be like, you know, the facade is off. You know, we're going to be overt about what we want. That didn't exactly happen. Instead, they waited and then began, you know, to proactively strip power uh, from the Democrats who were democratically represented. And they did this with total shamelessness. And I think that this openness about what their agenda is. Uh, that's new. I think you really started to see this in 2015 uh, with Mitch McConnell and the Supreme Court uh, with their refusal to accept Obama's judges. I mean, for lower court judges, that began, I think, in around 2013 and 2015 with the Supreme Court. And then, of course, you see Trump, you know, now that he's in there, Packing the courts uh, was completely unqualified. Extremely conservative judges uh, packing the Supreme Court people like Kavanaugh, who seem handpicked to prevent him uh, from ever being indicted for yeah. crimes. You know, we're, we're, we've already seen uh, democracy eroding, and so this is both a way, uh, you know, to weaken it so that the, the constitutional convention can be possible, and then the kind of, uh, you know, very negative tendencies that we're discussing now will just be, you know, exacerbated like hundredfold if they're actually able to amend the Constitution to get the kind of uh, country that they want.
0: Wow. Yeah. So so do you think that in 2020 that there is a real threat? I mean, you saw that they some some people conceded in some states, but even, you know, I think that they were sort of laying the groundwork to Say that elections are not legitimate Like I could see a 2020 sh- Scenario where it comes down to Florida It comes down to Broward and Palm Beach County And they do not have the infrastructure Ob- I think turnout will be even Even bigger and I think it'll be even harder For them to count the votes do you think that there is a Potential situation where Trump Refuses to Concede because he Says that the votes aren't able to be counted Like you sort of have a another Bush V Gore situation but with someone who's even less willing to respect the institutions of transferring power.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if Trump leaves, I think he's going to be literally pulled out uh, in handcuffs. Like. I don't think he has any intention of ever leaving the White House, because if he leaves the White House, then he's going to be subject uh, to both federal and state crimes, and, uh, you know, prosecution for those crimes. And so what he's doing right now is trying, you know, to pack everything, including his appointment, uh, you know, for attorney general, for example, so that he's immune. You know, he's trying to set up uh, this whole belief that uh, a sitting president cannot be indicted. And because we've never had a situation like Trump before, uh, you know, legal scholars aren't really sure what to do you know there's there's no precedent but if he's just a private citizen uh, it's pretty obvious what would need to be done and it's possible he'll be pardoned you know by whoever comes in next Um, Mm -hmm. you know that could be a travesty and so right it's possible he won't be the candidate in 2020 uh, if he does you know, I mean, I, I tend to think he won't resign, but um, yeah. I don't know how much is going to be revealed or what kind of charges are going to be brought by then. But he might be out, um, you know, he might be indicted. But even if he's gone, you know, I have to stress this, the Republicans in general have embraced this project. Yeah. And the Republicans are implicated in many of the same crimes as Trump. I mean, we just saw Michael Cohen get three years. He was the head of the RNC Finance Committee. Like, all this yeah. dirty money, all this collusion with Russia, it's not just Trump. It's the, like pretty much the entirety of the Republican Party, and so all that will be brought to the fore unless they control uh, the system. And so there's a mix of, you know, them wanting to put in uh, very extremist goals. Some of them are, you know, about uh, repressing civil rights, civil liberties. Others are economic. You know, they want their giant tax cuts. They want to make sure, you know, Grandma has no health insurance. You know, those kind of Paul Ryan style dreams. Mm-hmm. But lately, a lot of it is just self-protection. If they hold all the cars, if they are permanently in power, no one will ever hold them accountable for anything. And I think that you know fear at this point is driving this just as much as ambition, which I think was what was driving it earlier. Yeah,
0: right. I think it definitely tells us something that the Russians were looking for a way in to sort of destabilize the American political system, and they chose the Republican Party as being the one that is easier to penetrate. <laughs> I think that should say something to everybody. Um, but oh, I'm won- absolutely. But, I mean, I'm wondering, I saw you tweeted something about, um, about saying that it's really important for all implicated actors in the entire party in any capacity to essentially be held accountable for their involvement in the Russia scandal and in all of these corruption scandals, but so that we can't, so that even if Trump is out that there's not still this power structure in play for them to continue to pursue these goals. I'm just wondering what, to what extent do you feel like this constitutional convention is an inevitability? Do you think that there's a way that we can sort of turn the country, like steer it back towards this, you know, the more progressive direction that it felt like we were going in when Obama was in office.
2: Yeah, no, I don't think it's inevitable. Um, You know, the things that worry me most are less about what citizens want and, you know, what people's desires are than that. What we want doesn't seem to matter as Mm -hmm. much anymore. We have less leverage because the structure has changed. You know, within states, um, you know, there are repressive new laws that, Uh, limit, you know, who can vote, uh, what kind of representatives can be chosen. But, you know, they've wanted this for a very long time. Like, we're on about, like, year 40 of this idea yeah. kind of flowing around and then trying to achieve it. They still haven't achieved it. Uh, you know, every time we have an election it becomes touch and go because you know, they can lose legislatures, they can gain them. They don't completely know and you know that's one of the reasons that they're trying to stack them and you know, the other thing is, is if we do reach this terrible point, there's going to be a tremendous amount of debate. There may be Democrats that may want to alter the Constitution for progressive reasons. Yeah. I mean, I think what's most likely to happen, is for folks to just kind of be like, you know, this is led by a bunch of corrupt people who've been engaged in white-collar crime and, you know, suppression of civil liberties for a long time, like we should really not be doing this. I think that will be the main tactic, but if they have to get creative about it, um, you know, amending the Constitution can go in a number of different ways. Uh, Maybe we'll see the Equal Rights Amendment passed. I mean, I I don't think that that's really what will happen, but it's such a, um, you know, It's so hard to predict, uh, you know, in practice what will actually occur that I don't think anything is inevitable. I don't think it's inevitable that it'll happen. And I don't think it's inevitable that if it happens, it won't be struck down or turned around uh, in some way. So, but it is a danger. It is something people should look out for.
0: Okay. Well, that's not such horrible news. Uh, (laughs) You could have given us a way worse prediction. (laughs) You would have been like, actually, I just got word. It's happening right now. Yeah. Uh, One more thing I'm just I'm I'm curious about and I think it's interesting that you you sort of exist in an intersection of journalism that is not you know not the MSNBC and the CNN and obviously not Fox but you know I think that you have a sort of um, lane where it really feels like you're I I, like I said like the Paul Revere of these issues (laughs) I
1: love it that are
0: that are maybe widely known but they're not being widely discussed and seeing everything come out in this Russia investigation, I've been a bit um, confused as to why it plays out how it does, because a lot of the things that Trump is being, you know, is be- that's being talked about that he has done, I feel like a lot of those things have been written about in books, like, years ago. Like, if you read Russian Roulette, none of these things that they're saying about him now have been secret. Like, they've all been out there. So I'm just wondering if you have any sort of, I don't know, way to, like, make sense of the fact that why journalism feels like it's sort of two years late or several years late to what's already like known and established and out there in some situations.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's very frustrating and, you know, it's definitely not Everyone in journalism that's that's late, you know, uh, Russian roulette, for example, David Kor and Michael Isikoff were mm-hmm. early to it. Malcolm Nance wrote an entire book about it in October 2016. That was the publication date. So all this information is out there. I was publishing about Russia starting in mid-2016. I got a tremendous amount of blowback, uh, a huge amount of threats to my life. You know, it was a very difficult time. Yeah. Um, you know, it still is. I think that's one of the reasons people were reluctant to report on it, you know, is— Not just the sort of fear of being labeled an alarmist or hysterical, but because they were out threatening to kill people. I mean, you know, that's the reality of the situation that itself is a story it kind of amazed me when michael cohen was calling up reporters i mean it wasn't in reference to Russia; it's in reference to uh... sexual assault allegations towards trump you know threatening physical violence and messages on their phone and those were released in the public (laughs) in 2015 and i saw the way that journalists refused to stand up for that journalist who was threatened by michael cohen um... and that's been something that i've seen you know when when Uh, I've been threatened when other people I know who've broken these trades have been threatened. Journalists did not kind of rally together and say this is an assault on freedom of speech. Uh, They basically just joined in on it. (laughs) They joined in Mm -hmm. on the Trump uh, administration. They would print uh, hatchet jobs, smear jobs. I don't know whether that's out of, you know, kind of the economic desperation that's in elite media, you know, jobs are disappearing, people feel panicked, they want access, they want to be close to power, you know, that's personally not something I value in any way, so, you know, I'm doing a different type of journalism where mm-hmm. I just try to report the truth and report what's out there and kind of damn the consequences, but uh, that's part of it, um, you know, and I think it's an unwillingness to see things. and. One other thing, and this is probably the most disturbing aspect of all this, is that, you know, all the information I reported on was in the public domain. You know, I I didn't have, like, secret sources. I was just looking at what uh, individuals in the Trump campaign said, what was going on in Russia. Um, I had studied the former Soviet Union for decades, so I had, you know, some advantage in terms of knowing where to look. But that was it. And so I kept thinking, if I was able to piece this together and figure this out, like, what was the FBI doing? What were our intelligence agencies doing? What was our law enforcement doing? And not just this year, but doing for the past 30 years, because that's how long that Manafort and Cohen and Trump uh, and these ties to the Russian mafia have been forming. And so I think there's kind of a reluctance to take it seriously. Because folks naturally assume, well, you know, if Trump was really doing this, if he was really a Russian asset, if he was really a known criminal, clearly he would have been arrested a long time ago. uh, And he wasn't. They let him get away with everything. And so, you know, that is my question, is why weren't these people indicted earlier? Even now, the crimes they're indicted for, they're often from, like, the early 2000s. That was the case with both Manafort and Cohen. Like why not arrest them back then? Why not, you know, raise the alarm when Paul Manafort is running a presidential campaign instead of just treating it like he's you know, some ordinary guy. Like I knew his name right away because he's helped all these dictators and you know, particularly been active in Ukraine and I was like, Oh my god, like this is really terrible, like this is very alarming. People weren't alarmed. Um and so that's that's really the question is I think journalists kind of take their cues put people in power and they're like, oh, if you know James Comey's unconcerned, then I guess I'll be unconcerned too. Uh and we obviously can't trust uh those people in power to make the right decisions.
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot of what this has laid bare is like the level of crimes that a individual rich person commit can commit without being caught. Like all of these people basically are caught because they they got to the highest office in the land and like that brought scrutiny on them. But if they hadn't done that all of these crimes would have gone completely unpunished. Um, And I do have one. I have one final question for you. Oh, and then Sammy has one. Yes, I do. (laughs) Okay, my question, and you might not know the answer, but just based on your research and everything that you've done, who do you think individual one is? (laughs) <laughs> it's obviously Trump. We like, uh, know Trump. It's based the documents. Like yeah.
2: he, he won the presidential election. You know? I, don't I think that that's a mystery. At this <laughs> point, we can really put individual one, you know, on Trump Tower and kind
0: of make it a individual one tower. I, I think the only reason <laughs> exactly. Trump doesn't know that it's him is because he cannot read. Like he is <laughs> that's, also true. that's also true. Yeah. <laughs> um, my my last question is just going back to talking about how there are sort of these these things that are widely known or available to the public domain. Is there anything else that you think is a big story that's on the horizon other than this constitutional convention that we should be aware of or warning people about or looking into at this point?
2: Um, I mean, this is on people's radar, but not as much as I think it should be. And I think the role of Jared Kushner, you know, I've been beating his drum for years. Like, he's just as much of a danger to this country as Trump. He is from a family of organized crime, and he has been engaged in illegal and illicit activity uh, from before he got in the White House and now. And I think it's starting to come into focus, you know, one, because, as Andrea and I unfortunately may have uh, correctly predicted, he may be the, quote, uh, chief of staff. I think Jared has basically been acting as chief of staff in an informal capacity anyway, so I don't think this will be a huge change, but Jared is hooked up with, you know, the worst people, not just in Russia, but in Saudi Arabia, with Israel, with Netanyahu, um, you know, in the UAE, in China. Like, he's been making horrible deals and engaged with this, you know, alliance of autocrats around the world. Uh, And I think he's tremendously dangerous. I think Netanyahu uh, is a dangerous figure at this point, Uh, you know, both for Israelis and for the U.S. and for the world, and he's closely aligned with Kushner. Their families go back decades, and so you really have a unique relationship there, and I think that what's going to happen, you know, I mean, I've read that this is happening now, is that, you know, the Mueller investigation is expanding into looking at uh, countries in the Middle East in addition to Russia, yeah, yeah, at, at Saudi Arabia, at Israel, at Qatar, at the UAE. I think, you know, a lot of very dirty deals are about to come out. And I think that, you know, the Trump Kushner family is trying to consolidate power very quickly so that they can be immune um, from repercussions. And I think that the people they've helped abroad, people like NBS and Netanyahu, are trying to return the favor and help them. And in the midst of all this, they're just... Ordinary people, you know, around the world, in the U.S., in Russia and Israel and Saudi Arabia, who just want a better way of life, you know, want a government of decent people. And we're not getting it. You know, none of us are. And so I'm worried um, about the repercussions of Kushner for the world and Ivanka, too. uh, And I hope that people take that seriously.
0: You know, I always thought Jared and Ivanka weren't really a match that made sense to me. But the more the more I (laughs) learn about Jared, I mean, just. From you know, when he was on Gossip Girl, I didn't think anything of him, <laughs> but now I realize he married into the perfect yeah. family for him.
1: It was actually like a very, um, very well matched, as, as he they would, would say, say. shirt <laughs>
2: Yeah, I yeah. mean, I have questions about that marriage, and I'm not sure I want to go down that road, but you know, from the beginning, I was like, this This strikes me as an arranged marriage, and there was a lot of kind of debate beforehand you know some of it was about will Ivanka convert but you know they broke up um and the person who brought them back together was Wendy Deng Right at the time was Rupert Murdoch's wife is is she recurring cast of characters of people involved in all of these illicit deals because of course Murdoch is heavily implicated um in this and you know they're all working to bring these two together you have you know Charles Kushner's involvement a lot of this Very strange stuff. Um, I think that Jared and Ivanka are much more kind of media savvy. I mean, Trump himself is media savvy, but in kind of like an old school way, like a blowhard, carnival barker, tabloid kind of way. I think Jared and Ivanka are better at being quiet and they're better at being slick. And so I worry about that, um, you know, this younger generation. And uh, what they're going to do. But yeah, you know, I, I have some questions. I don't really think uh, love was, you know, what made the world uh, not go around, but maybe come crashing to a halt in this case uh, here. So.
0: <laughs> well, you have to be capable of love for, <laughs> for one other than yourself. Uh, um, I've heard yeah, it. Su- exactly. I've heard it suggested that Wendy Dang is, is actually a spy. B-
1: is that, I have no. never heard that Wendy Dang is a Google spy. It. Google. It. <laughs> Google Wendy Dang is a spy. Okay. Sarah, do you have any do you have any opinion on this? <laughs> do you this? know that she's a spy? Yeah. Wait, what?
0: I've I've read that Wendy Dang may has been like maybe a spy. A Chinese spy. <laughs> I've
2: heard that but um there we go. I, mean, I just don't know. Like I haven't seen any <laughs> evidence for it and like we live in an era where basically everyone is calling everyone a spy so i want to be you know somewhat careful you know i will say she's shady like i'll say (laughs) she, she hangs out with a lot of really terrible people and so whether you know if i were for example a spy agency i would want her in my fold because she's connected to so many oligarchs and politicians and you know uh creeps from around the world you know so it's there is a sort of you know, potential there, but I haven't seen any yeah. hard evidence of that
1: effect. It's definitely an interesting friend group yeah. that she has created but, for but herself.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes they don't even like need to be an a technical spy, you know, to be someone yeah, who is well, used I think as a pawn. Could
2: well be like an asset instead of mm-hmm. an agent. I mean, yeah, you could just right. be someone who's. Useful, uh, you know, anyone who's connected to a billionaire involved in media, you know, is a tremendously useful individual. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think Trump was so useful. He was a, you know, I guess a billionaire, a very debt-ridden billionaire, probably <laughs> yeah. involved in media, business, politics. You know, you get an in with Trump, you get in uh, to this whole world. And, you know, people like, like Wendy Deng, you know, that's another example of someone like that. But I really just, I don't know enough about her on an individual level to you know, make that uh, <laughs> claim.
1: <laughs> that makes sense. That seems appropriate. Um, So I think we're going to wrap it up now. Sarah, do you know, uh, just let our listeners know where they can find you online, where they can follow what you're doing.
2: Yeah, probably the best place these days we have been lazy about updating my website is uh, Sarah Kenzier on Twitter. Uh, I post links to, you know, projects I'm working on or interviews I've done. Uh, I host I co-host a weekly podcast, Gaslit Nation. You can find that anywhere a podcast is streaming. I have a book View from Flyover Country, uh, which is out in paperback and available. And I'm working on a new book, so I'll be, kind of you know, maybe not on Twitter as much for a while, but uh, that's generally the best place to find me.
1: Awesome. Well, when that's done, we'd also love to talk to you about... Whatever your latest venture is. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a great conversation. I cannot wait for everyone to hear no, this. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. All right, guys. Yeah. Uh, until the end of Democracy, I'm Elise Morales. I'm Sammy Fishbach, And this was the Betches Up uh, Podcast.
0: Bye. <laughs> Betches.